humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0 Radio, on lovely AM 950 in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Talking to you from the bunker. <laughs> How are you today? Welcome to another edition of the show where we talk about idealism and idealists. We have a great show. The big interview is with Colette Campbell of Bremer Bank. She is an idealist doing the kind of work that I do, but she is doing it at Bremer Bank and and rocking it. Um, so you're going to, I think you're going to really enjoy that interview, particularly um, I think you're going to love hearing about what she says makes her an idealist. In my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as I ordinarily do, um, my work as an idealist. But let us begin with an idealist who has been in the news for the last several weeks and an idealist who is paying a huge, huge price for his idealism, his desire to change the world. I am talking about a 43-year-old black Texas high school principal named uh, James Whitfield. He has a PhD. Um, until Monday, Dr. Whitfield was the first black principal of the Colleyville Heritage High School in Colleyville, Texas, a very well-to-do Median income, 150000 Very white. Only 1% black um, residents in the town. It's a suburb in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Because of some very idealistic words that Dr. Whitfield wrote in the wake of George Floyd's murder, um, and uh, because of other things, the, great, the, the Grapeville, Colleyville Independent School District board voted to not renew Dr. Whitfield's contract for this school year on Monday of this week. Okay. So this man just got fired. And here's the bones of the story. In 2019, Dr. Whitfield was serving as the assistant vice, pres vice principal of the Colleyville High School. Um, he had uh, not been at the school district for long. He came from outside the school district. But in that short time, he had impressed the school board, school administrators enough to be named principal. To, so he's going to move from vice, you know, vice principal at the high school, and they were going to name him the principal at the one of the district's middle schools. Um, but that was not without somebody in the administration first demanding that Dr. Whitfield remove a picture of him and his wife from Dr. Whitfield's Facebook account. It was a picture of Dr. Whitfield and his wife kissing on a beach during their fifth wedding anniversary. The picture was tasteful, but apparently the problem was that Dr. Whitfield's wife is white and Dr. Whitfield is black. Despite the overt racism, Dr. Whitfield complied and removed the photo, the objectionable photo, from his Facebook feed. He didn't even actually, I mean, you know, you know how we have photos. I mean, it, you know, it, it wasn't like a recent photo. Somebody had to go hunting. But somebody objected to it. School calls and says, will you remove that photo, please? And then he's named the assistant, he's named the, the principal of the middle school. Okay. Um, so he's named, he, he goes on to serve as the middle school principal for the 2019-2020 school year with all of the challenges around COVID and distance learning. And he did that so well as principal of the middle school that in early 2020, 
Dr. Whitfield was named principal of the Colville High School. A week after that wonderful promotion, so promotion occurred in early May of 2020, a week after that, George Floyd was murdered. As happened to hundreds of millions of humans, George Floyd's murder had a profound impact on Dr. Whitfield. So much so that at 4.30 in the morning on of June 3rd, 2020, Dr. Whitfield got up, he couldn't sleep, and he typed out an email to all of his old middle school colleagues and his new high school colleagues. Here are portions of that letter. It is a very idealistic letter. And he starts out saying this, Dear family, I trust this message finds you safe and well. As I type these words, it's 4.30 in the morning and I can't sleep. For the past several days, this has been the case. Remember, this is right after George Floyd. This spring, you battled an invisible enemy and effectively took your classrooms virtual overnight. We all know that it was not perfect, but the work you did to ensure our students got what they needed was nothing short of a miracle. Now, as you begin your summer, an all-too-familiar enemy, one that has always been in our midst, has landed another devastating blow to our nation's spirit. Racism. The recent deaths of George Floyd, Armad Arby, Arby, Arbery, excuse me, and Breonna Taylor have shook us to the core, adding to the ever-growing list of black Americans who have lost their lives because of the color of their skin. Systemic racism is alive and well, doing precisely what it was set up to do. The same questions crop up. What can I do to affect change? Why is this still happening? Why do some people's lives seem not to have the same value as others? I will be 42 years old next month, and never in my life have I experienced the level of support when it comes to issues of race. I, I cannot begin to tell you how encouraging it has been to have so many of my white brothers and sisters buck the status quo by calling, texting, un, unashamedly saying that black lives do indeed matter, peacefully marching with me and making a commitment to learn and take meaningful action. You get in the sense of this letter? Let me just finish um, what he wrote. I encourage us all not to grow weary in the battle against systemic racism. Commit to be an anti-racist. While there are great obstacles to face, please know that I am with you on this journey towards conciliation for our nation. I would love to say reconciliation, but that would imply that we've been somewhere we have not been along our country's journey as it relates to racial equality. We will learn together, laugh together, cry together, and make progress together. Our work as educators is truly that most important work. Our schools set the foundation for our future. Education is the key to stomping out ignorance, hate, and systemic racism. It's a necessary conduit to get, quote, liberty and justice for all, unquote. It's a great responsibility, but one that I am so happy to embrace with you. I love you all dearly and very much look forward to the journey ahead. I may be out of the building, but I will continue to work with you to move heaven and earth for all of our kids. Sincerely, James. He sent that letter off 
in early June of 2020, and all he received back in response to that letter was praise and support. Not a single negative reaction to that letter in June of 2020. Fast forward to August to July 26th, 2021. We are now 14 months after that 13 and a half, 14 months after that letter went out. Dr. Whitfield was the principal for the high school for a year by that point. His contract coming up for renewal. And at the school board meeting on July 26th of this year, okay, a man stood up, had a copy of Dr. Whitfield's letter, and started blasting him, claiming that, uh, hold on a second, claiming at the meeting that what Dr. Whitfield was doing was engaging in critical race theory and that he was advocating, that he was advocating and encouraging the destruction of all institutions and businesses. This man called for Dr. Whitfield to be fired and to much applause from the audience. That man who stood up, I should mention, his name is Clark, and he was an unsuccessful candidate for the school board. I should also mention he is white. And believe it or not, this Clark fellow standing up, claiming that Dr. Whitfield's letter was proof that he was engaging in critical race theory, and that he wanted to destroy all institutions. That was enough. That was enough for the school superintendent to place Dr. Whitfield on suspension. In the letter suspending Dr. Whitfield, among other reasons, which all sound pretty hokey, was the... In, was the was the claim that Dr. Whitfield had that picture of he and his wife kissing. I mean, remember, he removed the the picture from Facebook. Uh, He successfully served as a middle school principal after removing the photo. Then he got promoted to principal. And now the superintendent was complaining about the letter as one of the reasons why they were suspending Dr. Whitfield. That gets us to Monday of this week. So like, you know, five, six days ago when the school board considered whether or not to renew Dr. Whitfield's contract for the 21-22 school year. Three dozen people spoke in favor of Dr. Whitfield. Not a single person spoke against him. Dr. Whitfield tried to speak on his behalf, but he only had a minute to say anything. Despite all of the support for Dr. Whitfield, the school board unanimously voted not to renew his contract. And they offered no concrete reasons. Of course, Dr. Whitfield has a lawyer. This thing will continue to play out. I share this story with you because it is what's happening in America right now as I talk to you. It reflects how our educators are being threatened to shut up and not even mention how the system continues to be rigged in favor of white people. 
It's all about whitewashing <laughs> white history so that white people can keep their power. And I have to tell you, listeners, this is such a fundamental threat to our democracy. I cannot overstate that. Okay, Google Dr. James Whitfield and you'll be able to read this story. Consider how right now, today, an idealist is paying the price for speaking the truth. Okay, when we come back, we'll do the big interview with Colette Campbell. You will like it. And uh, we'll give you my C block after that. Thanks so very much. We'll be back in a second. on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio. Um, so please uh, take the time and Google uh, Dr. James Whitfield and learn more about what's going on. That injustice, incredible injustice down in Texas. But now I get to pivot to something that is not an injustice whatsoever and it's a wonderful thing. I have Colette Campbell on the line. She is here for the big interview. Colette, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thank you. So excited to be with you here this afternoon. Thanks, Ellie. Uh, well, Colette, and let me tell uh, the audience a little bit about you. You are the Director of Talent Acquisition, Diversity, and Inclusion for Bremer Bank. Uh, you are a dynamic, wonderful human. You've got degrees in religious studies and counseling, and then you went back to school and got degrees in management and leadership and human development. And uh, you are um, Canadian originally, uh, you know, and born to parents who emigrated from Jamaica. Um, and Colette, we should let everybody know right off the bat, you are my friend, dear friend, and Bremer Bank is a cherished client of mine. So let's just make sure we get that out there so everybody knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, and if that wasn't the case, I don't know whether I'd be able to get you to come on the show. So there you go. <laughs> that's, that's not true at all. That is not true at all. Um, at all. We've had such great opportunities to work together in this work and championing the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So um, I have been a fan and excited to be able to be with you here today. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. You know, I'm joking around a little bit. So, so Colette, <laughs> you know, um, let's, let's just talk about uh, something that's going on in corporate America right now, which is how companies, including like Bremer, are, you know, getting... Um, way, way, way more focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're creating these positions, sometimes at, you know, man often at manager level, but some many times at director level, to help make organizations more uh, diverse and inclusive. What are you seeing, because you are in the middle of that world, and what are you seeing and what challenges do you think are, are not being met or still ongoing? 
Yes. Well, I think you're, you're right. I mean, it's particularly with um, the, you know, the tragedy and the death of George Floyd, I think organizations more than ever are realizing that there is there there just is so much disparity. And so what what are we going to do collectively, strategically to make change? And so even my role and in, in the introduction of my bio, when I started at Bremer, um, I was uh in a director position and my position actually last fall was elevated um, to chief diversity chief talent acquisition and diversity officer and so with that elevation i think organizations are realizing that diversity equity and inclusion can't even just be siloed to one area of the organization but has to be integrated in such a way that that change is is impactful so that um, we're not just thinking about who we're employing, but we're thinking about who we're doing business with and, and that we have to make impact. We've got to have, we've got to have some differences. So um, the other thing, the other reality is that, you know, all of us are in this dire talent um, need and, and, the talent that is increasingly becoming available is diverse talent, and they're also not represented enough in our organizations. Um, you know, we just—I just was looking at some some data, thinking about colleges and universities, and our footprint at Bremer's in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and North Dakota. But the graduating class in 2019, when you think about diversity in Minnesota, it was 36 percent in in this is minority representation, and in Wisconsin, 27 percent, and North Dakota, 21 percent. So wow. those numbers are large, and and so that's who's coming into our our work our workforce, and so we're we're also realizing. Yeah, what are what are we doing so that uh, we are strategically thinking about this next generation of the workforce? So some of this is about competition as well, right? I mean, um, organizations that get it about diversity, inclusion, and equity, um, you know, and, and enact uh, policies and programs, and are progressive and are inclusive they're going to attract uh, more likely diverse candidates than organizations that are lagging behind in that, right? Yeah, and not only attract, but need to retain them, need to promote right. them. And that's who our customers are too, right? Our customer face is also changing. So not only <laughs> is this impactful in talent, but it's also impactful in who our customers are for, for all of us, in, including Bremer. So, but, and Colette, you, you know, you are in the business, I'm in the business. We both know that there are organizations out there, and we don't need to name any of them, of course, that really see this as check the box rather than as integral to changing culture and, you know, making it like one of the critical pillars of, of the business. What, what do you think are going to happen to those businesses, the check the box ones? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I know, here's what I do know. Because we are all competing for talent and talent has choices, <laughs> people want to work with organizations that realize that this is an imperative and realize that this is important. And so I think that organizations that, that aren't necessarily putting focus on this, they're 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 going to miss out if it's not now in the in the near future and to be really competitive to go into the future. So I I you know I know that um I know that for us 
oftentimes when we are talking to people who are interested um, in working at Bremer, they're, they're attracted to our mission. They're attracted mm-hmm. to the fact that we are, are doing, um, you know, we're, we always are thinking about the, the community, like that is a part of our mission, cultivating thriving communities and that we're taking this, this seriously. So um, I know that, organizations that, you know, maybe if this isn't on their radar, I don't know how they're, how, how they're uh, going to be competitive in terms mm-hmm. of what, what the future holds. So <clears throat> that's what I would say. Right. You know, and, and you know, I'm a lawyer in addition to everything else. And I work with the legal yeah. community quite a bit and, and it, you know, and the legal community generally lags behind um, business in, in this mm. area um, greatly. And you know, I mean, the legal community is waking up, but boy, they have a whole lot more, you know, ground to cover compared to a place like Bremer. And, um, okay, well, listen, um, we're going to, uh, Colette, we're, believe it or not, we've got to take a break already. Um, but when we come back from our break, I'd like to do two things. Let's talk quickly about what Bremer is doing um, in this area around how, how things have changed for Bremer in terms of its focus post-George Floyd. And then secondly, I want to get into your background because you have a wonderfully, wonderfully rich background that uh, I think um, our audience will love hearing about. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, everyone, we've been speaking with Colette Campbell who is the, and now I've got to get your title fixed, uh, uh, Colette, but she is way up there at Bremer doing talent acquisition, diversity, and inclusion for Bremer Bank. We come back from our break. We'll talk more with Colette. Um, In the meantime, if you like what you hear, remember, uh, go visit my website at elliekrug.com or email me at elliejkrug at gmail. We'll be back in a sec. Thanks. LA 2.0 Radio, Ellie Krug here on lovely AM 950. We've been, uh, before we took our break, we had started the big interview with Colette Campbell, who is the Chief Talent Acquisition, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for Bremer Bank. Um, and as I said in the initial uh, uh, beginning of the interview, uh, she is a, f- a friend and Bremer is a cherished client. I would say that Colette is also a cherished friend. Colette, um, tell us, uh, and you know, what, you know, George Floyd's murder, what happened last summer was a watershed event for just about everybody in America. And I know from my experience of working with Bremer, Bremer did a number of things um, that differently, started to do different initiatives and projects in the wake of George Floyd's murder and um, how the country was awakening to systemic racism. Talk, can you talk a little bit about what Bremer undertook um, in those regards? Sure. So, um, well, Gene Crane, who was our CEO, uh, along with our senior executive team, wrote a pretty responsive action plan. And, um, you know, again, starting from a place of just humility, because this work is big work. We know that we know that we we needed to to 
to do something differently to get different actions. And so um, essentially focused on a couple different areas, thinking about inward, what are we doing in terms of our, our hiring practices, in terms of thinking about representation, how can we be more deliberate and strategic? And so ended up um, adding some additional resources to a talent acquisition team with the focus of DEI. Uh, the other thing uh, that I mentioned earlier was that my role uh, got elevated out of HR and um, to, you know, a senior uh, position, leadership position, so that the oversight of DEI was integrated and interwoven into all of the things that that we are are doing. And again, there's that that takes time, but that that was a, a really big opportunity as well as. Um, promoting another individual, a, a, a senior HR person to to oversee the DEI work. And so, you know, made some, um, some considerable um, just strategy and goals into yeah. to what we're doing so we can have impact. Lastly, hired a, a really seasoned um, individual in financial services to, to take a look at our 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 banking practices right we wanted to um we've got some key areas of focus affordable housing and mortgage lending making sure that we are establishing a greater presence to serve our our bipoc communities but first really just doing some deep listening so a lot of times people want to go into this action but first really understanding and hearing from people what it is that they're needing and so to be honest we're, we're still we're still in that work, right? Because right. it's only been, um, you know, it's been a little over a year. But but I would say just the the fact that there are, it's it wasn't just words. I would say on a, a document, but but actual resources and and people um, allocated to to do the work. And so I'm really proud of that. The other big shift I would say is that we elevated our work so that. Our, our managers and our leaders also understand their uh, ownership and responsibility in this work because it's not just um, my work or the senior executive team, but it's our work collectively as employees and as leaders at Bremer Bank. So um, it's, you know, it's it is hard, hard work and, and people are all also at different phases in this work. And so to be honest, it's also, you know, kind of getting people up to getting us all on a, on the same page as, as to this is what is our collective work. So, yes. Well, and, and, um, and, you know, I'm not uh, trying to pander, but, you know, I work with a lot of clients, Colette, and I've got to say, you know, my work with Bremer, Bremer stands out quite a bit for the way that it's so forward thinking and so willing. I mean, you you know some of this work is about getting uncomfortable and about having to talk about things that, you know, we humans don't like to ordinarily talk about. And, you know, um, your leadership at team at Bremer, uh, they're, they're willing to do that kind of work. And I'm very, very impressed by that. So for what that is worth, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. It's a, it, I, we have a really great team. And as I said, we... We also know that we we also know that this is a journey, and we're all growing in this work. Um, I would say individually and collectively, but I'm really I'm really grateful to have the team and the leadership team that we do at Bremer. 
So then, Colette, let's talk a little bit about your background. What, you know, you, you've got a very, very rich history. And um, talk a little bit about how, you know, your, you know, your family roots and your journey through life has gotten you here to where you are at Primer. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a big question. So, yeah, I am, I'm from Canada. My parents were both um, immigrated from Jamaica to Canada. So I think I've always had that experience um, in a real way of what does it mean to, to, to maybe sometimes to, to be different, but to also want to fit in, how to make sure that you're, um, you know, just, just doing the best that you can to, to see others and, um, and to also contribute to, to, to something that is bigger than yourself. And my parents really modeled that. Um, and for me, and, and I think it's always also given me just a desire and passion to, to work with others so that they can see other people. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, I've always believed that, that, the that that there's there's so much available to all of us if we're all seeing and and wanting that for for others and so um i think that that background has has been really has really been important to to me in terms of i think even how i approach this work um so you know recently though too my husband so i i'm from canada um i've lived for significant periods of time around the world i was in south korea for um, about four years where I met my my spouse from Minnesota. And then recently in 2015, we were in Guatemala for a period of time. And so this idea of, you know, just engaging with others and putting myself out there into new spaces and and learning to be uncomfortable and to 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 know that I don't know hardly anything and that there's always learning, um, but that there's some collective things that that also make us human. And so that's just been such a, I, I would say, just a wonderful, um, you know, just experience, but also it's created this insatiable appetite for myself of of understanding people and wanting to 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 grow deeper. And and implicit in what you talked about, Colette, is <clears throat> the willingness to take risks, right? The really mm-hmm. the the willingness to stand in where things may be bumpy, um, where you don't fully understand the whole landscape of things, but nonetheless to show up. And, um, and, and you know, I mean, you've heard me talk about the power of human familiarity, right? And, and mm-hmm. just getting to know other humans. I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I think that's the only actually, the only pathway for us to get through all the, all the crap we've got going on right now. <laughs> You know, and, and, and it sounds to me like you have, you have lived that, um, you know, just through your, through your life experiences. Yeah. And I mean, I continue to live it. I think anybody who's doing this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is constantly um, both inviting and challenging people to, to see others in a deeper way. I mean, you know, on a human level and, and I, do have a lot of background in this work of human development. We 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 want and need self-preservation, and so there's this individualistic nature that we that we all have. And so this this work of DEI is really about 
um, encouraging, stretching people to to also to consider the other and to consider others. And I just think um, I just I think that's that's always going to to be both exciting and hard. Right. And so um, that leads us into this kind of idea of how do we how, how do we all show up as as allies for one another? Um, because that's the only way I think this work can move forward is we're, we're, we're either um, often either in the role of, um, you know, target or we're the advocate, right? And I, I know myself as a, as a Black woman navigating white spaces, I, I don't always feel like I'm a part of, right. of the collective. Right. And so I need to know that there's champions out there championing for me. And I know that in the role that I have in the influence and power I have that I need to be doing that for others. And so, I mean, I, and I think all of us have the opportunity to show up in that way, regardless of our position, regardless of our title, we, we, we just have the opportunity and we've got choices that we have to make every day and be really deliberate. And so um, I think that's the only way this work will, will really move forward. Well, and so, and maybe you have already answered it, but what, if you could put your finger on one or two things, what do you think made you so idealistic, Colette? Because that's really, as I look at your life history, you are an idealist, somebody working to try and make the world a better place. What, What do you think happened in your past or is ongoing right now to make you idealistic? Mm. Oh, I, that's such a good question. I, I think, I think it's love. <laughs> no, that's kind of, a, but oh, I no, do. I like, love I that. Think, Stop. I, I love I that. Think, <laughs> I think, I think it's love. Like I think, I think it is love. And I, I am also a person of faith. And so I, I feel like I feel so loved by my creator. I feel so loved by mm. my parents. I feel so loved by, by many people. And I just, I just know that, you know, not a lot of, not everybody feels that way. And so that's also why I think people show up the way they do in fear and in mm. um, feeling like they've got to dominate or control or, um, you know, own more than others because they're afraid. And so I think love is what, uh. you know, just penetrates that, that can alleviate that harshness that that mm. is causing the pain that it causes and so um i know that that is what actually fuels my ability to do the work that i do is it's it's a it's a deeper like that's what that that's my why you know um and i know yeah. that sounds kind of big and maybe even too fluffy for some no, people, but, no, no, but it is all. what it is that, that is my, <laughs> that, that's what, that's what makes me, I think, an idealist. Oh my gosh, Colette, geez, that is, I don't think I've ever had anybody ever talk about love that way when I've asked them about being an idealist. And it is so incredibly powerful with the way that you said that. So thank you. You know, I mean, you. I mean, I, I, I believe that we all want to love and be loved, you know, and, and, um, I, it's a, I think it's a universal thing. 
It is just absolutely universal for all humans. Mm. It's just unfortunate yeah. that many people don't have it. So, well, Colette, we are out of time. Um, and um, I really, really appreciate you being on the show. Um, thank you so very much. Thank you for what you're doing um, in the world in general, okay? Because you have a much larger footprint than just at Bremer. And, um, and you know, and I'm, thank you for what you're doing at Bremer too, okay? Because oh, and I'm, thank, yeah. Well, I'm so, I feel so grateful to be at an organization like Bremer. I mean, I, I feel so grateful to be able to be in the role that I'm in. And I'm extremely grateful that you uh, invited me to be on this podcast and to talk a little bit about idealism and <laughs> and this work of DEI. And I am grateful that you are leading in the way that you lead in so many organizations and, and in the world. So thank you, Ellie. Oh, thanks a lot, Colette. Okay, well... All right. Well, listeners, we've been speaking with Colette Campbell, the Chief Talent Acquisition and Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at Bremer Bank. Uh, If you like what you hear, visit my website. Tell others about about uh, this show. When we come back from the break, we'll do my C block um, where I'll talk about my work. Uh, Thanks. I, I've got to just tell you, I so love that bumper music. I so love Just Like Heaven by The Cure. I just do. I could, if I don't watch it, I could just listen to the whole song. <laughs> okay, we're back. Colette Campbell. You know what? Not every day you ask somebody why they're an idealist and they say because of love. <laughs> I don't know about you, but boy, that, that just grabbed me. But one of the other things Colette talked about was fear. And, um, and in my, you know, A block where I talked about Dr. James Whitfield, that was about fear too. Whole lot of fear. And so let me relate yesterday, um, excuse me on Thursday, remember you're taping this Ellie on Thursday. Um, I did seven hours of training. (laughs) I did uh, two, two hour trainings, um, about, uh, transgender 101 about what it means to be transgender. I trained a um, one of the um, one of the uh, uh, city governments in the larger Twin Cities area, and then um, that evening I trained um, a bunch of Rotarians. I happen to be a Rotarian. Rotary is a really great thing. Trained a bunch of Rotarians about culture change and about gray area thinking and about how to how to change. Um, the way that we do things and to become more diverse and more diverse and to uh, and, and inclusive for uh, rotary clubs and all of the audiences my goodness they were all engaging and they were all you know willing to sit in but it was all so clear that some people were afraid and some people even talked about that um, during the talks 
You know, and what, you know, they were afraid of saying the wrong thing or they were afraid of being judged for something or, or whatever. And everyone, I just want to just pause here for a second and talk about how fear so controls us. It does. And, you know, me as a speaker and as a trainer, I'm always aware of the role of fear. I mean, heck, there are people just, they get afraid when they just meet me, okay? In part because they don't know what box to put me in, whether it's the female box because of that's the way I look, thank God, or the male box because, unfortunately, that's the way that I sound. And it causes a lot of people to be afraid because they, they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or that they're going to have to interact with me and they don't want to and that type of thing. And this thing about fear, um, I mean, in the Dr. Whitfield story at the beginning of the show, I mean, literally, it's white people fearing what's going to happen if, if people of other skin colors get in charge. That's what they're afraid of. What, 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 what's the world going to be like for me as a white person when we don't have power anymore? Listeners, we've got to get past this. We've got to talk about our fear. We have to label it. And then we just have to do the hard work to beat it down. We do. Because if we let fear overtake us, um, we're going to lose our democracy. We will. People will want to go to the authoritarian who will keep them safe. We saw that with our last president, which, of course, they won't keep you safe. They'll just do what they need to to enrich themselves. We have to get past our fears. And it begins by labeling it. I'm afraid. Good. Thank you for being honest. Thanks for the vulnerability. Let's talk about how we can get past that now. And by the way, I'm just a human like you. I want the same things that you do. And let's begin with that. Okay, big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Thank you, Brett. You're always great. Always, always. And thanks you to um, you, my listeners, for being here for another show. Please let others know. By the way, yes, two listeners, not one, but two listeners of this show. And personally, it was really great to hear from them. And to, they were on my trainings. What do you know? And uh, I mean, they sent me messages and like, hey, it was wonderful, actually. Um, so uh, go out, okay, between now and next week. And next week, we've got Art Cullen coming in to uh, Pulitzer Prize winning editor for a newspaper in Iowa. Um, go between now and then. Go do something to make the world better, please. Thanks so very much. Talk to you next week. Bye.